Hello and welcome to another episode of Drone Source, sponsored by Elsight. I'm Ben Gross, and I'd like to thank you for joining me and welcome you to our podcast. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Drone Source. Today with me is Jurgen Greil, the CEO of Flyno Aviation. Jurgen graduated from the Technical University of Vienna, Austria, with a degree in mechanical engineering. Besides skills in various vehicle propulsion technologies and architectures, he gained insight into general mobility concepts and set the basis for a general understanding of many aspects of traffic as such. After six years developing satellites, he changed to the automotive industry, where he was active for more than 20 years in various design and management roles at Opel, Porsche, and BMW, where he was responsible for innovative vehicle concepts with alternative drivetrains. Within BMW's Project I, he was the driving force behind the electric drive models I3 and I8, but did so also within the hydrogen fuel cell vehicle project. He holds commercial licenses for airplanes and helicopters with instrument and multi-engine ratings, which is one of the reasons why 3D mobility for everyone was always a valid option for him rather than an absurd idea. Hi, Jürgen. How are you? Well, hi, Ben. Uh, Thank you for being with you and uh, thank you for the introduction. Definitely. I'm glad to have you on board. Why don't we start off with a simple question? Tell me a little bit more about yourself that's not in the bio and tell me a lot a bit more about Flyno Aviation. Yeah, well, you know, um, as a as a um, mechanic engineer, I have been always trying to uh, improve, especially things in in mobility concerning, you know, how much energy does it take to transport people or goods from from A to B? How make it uh, safer? How make it more comfortable? And um, so, you know, my thirty year ter- professional journey has started in the um, aerospace industry. Um, and um, for six years, so I was mainly working on satellite structures for research satellites uh, from ESA. And um, I did then in 1993, so 30 years ago, I did my master thesis at Opel uh, about electric cars. And uh, this was, you know, long before um, uh, the world really got into electric cars and uh, California Air Resource Board was the first pushing for, you know, zero emission vehicles. And, um, and so, you know, these were, these were the first attempts. Not all of them were successful. So this was quite the journey with up and downs. Um, but, um, you know, going through the different companies you mentioned, I spent most of my uh, professional life in the automotive industry at, uh, at BMW, um, working mainly on vehicle architectures for alternative drivetrains, uh, starting with um, hydrogen in combination with combustion engines. Later, I was one of the first team members of Project I, um, which, you know, the car I3 and I8 you mentioned um, came out. Um, and um, and then later, um, you know, I got from serious development into pre-development and then into research, uh, was working also on um, hydrogen fuel cell cars. Um, which which is a which is a different topic, but um, you know the car industry has been looking for many decades into alternative drivetrains, 
But um, what I then learned um, in China when I was with Great Wall Motor, um, and you know, the Chinese, they really think big. They have to think big because there's just so many people. And, um, and as you know, China is, um, you know, the largest uh, car manufacturer. And uh, the Chinese government is also very ambitious concerning zero emission uh, vehicles. So when you start from scratch, actually, that's what I did. You know, at Great Wall Motor, I was responsible for vehicle architecture for battery and uh, fuel cell cars. And, you know, they think in, in huge quantities. You, you have to think about where do you get the resources. And um, in 2017, you know, Mr. Xi said, okay, the last 15 years, we brought 300 million people um, into dwellings with uh, uh, fresh water, electricity, and a sewage system, right? And um, in the next 15 years, we are going to do this for the, for the last 300 million. Um, so, you know, you, you can imagine, you know, building 200 cities the size of Vienna in 15 years, because that's what you're actually talking about, right? So you need huge amount of concrete and steel uh, and, you know, all the, all the resources ne necessary to build these, these cities. Um, and so the construction industry is actually competing with the automotive industry for the same resources, right? Now, if you look in a car, um, you know, they are now, especially with electric cars, you know, the average weight of electric cars is close to two tons. And um, the average occupation is about one 1.2 passengers per vehicle. So, you know, it takes a lot of resources to transport people from A to B with a car concerning the resources you need for producing the vehicle on the one hand, but also for all the infrastructure necessary for, you know, streets, bridges, tunnels, and so forth, right? So that's that's a very, very important uh, thing to, to realize. And that's actually what I learned in China, you know, where do you get all the resources from? Especially if you know that in 2010, there was about 1 billion cars worldwide. And in 2020, only 10 years after, car population grew to close to 1.5 billion cars. So in only 10 years, you know, the car population grew by 500 million um, and infrastructure did not. So therefore, you know, the traffic jams got longer and longer. The average uh, speed of the cars got less and less. And so, you know, you, you just get stuck, right? And, and you know, probably you have been to Beijing and... Um, you know, if, if you are sitting in a traffic jam in Beijing for, let's say, eight hours and you don't move one centimeter because there's just so much traffic, then you really realize what it means to be in a traffic jam, right? And so, um, you know, not only in China, but also pretty much all over the world, you know, there are so many countries, especially in, in Southeast Asia, in India, but also the MENA region, um, also Africa. There's a lot of reasons um, to think about 3D mobility. And in 2018, I quit uh, with Great Wall Motor. And in 2019, we founded Fly Now Aviation because we realized that pretty much all of our competitors are aiming for a premium market and are just repeating the same mistakes as the automotive industry has been doing with, uh, with battery electric cars, right? No car manufacturer is out there who would be able to uh, sell a car the same price as a conventional car, um, you know, without the range anxiety. 
um, and and pretty much you know the same uh, passenger and, and cargo capacity as a as a conventional car at the same price. They are all about thirty percent or more more expensive. So there's just a lot of people who are not able to afford electric cars. And on the other hand, you know, cars are always getting bigger and bigger, right? And and in the 3D mobility, that's pretty much the same thing. So, you know, just as um, in the car industry, where uh, it was not, you know, Mercedes-Benz or Rolls-Royce or Hoach or Duesenberg or, you know, all these fancy brands, uh, and they, you know, made excellent cars, but they were just way too expensive. It was Ford in the U.S. with the Model T, and it was Volkswagen with the Beetle in Europe, and a little later Toyota with the with the Corolla in in Asia, who you know made or could produce cars at the cost so that they could be sold to the to the average people to the to, you know to every Joe on the road, right? Um, and um, and this made the car so so popular and so successful, right? Because once the, the, the price came down, um, these people who bought these cars, who were also the taxpayers, they, they, they were willing that their taxpayers' money was used for building the necessary infrastructure, right? And so th this is our USP at FlyNow Aviation. You know, we are aiming for um, a vertical takeoff and landing vehicle which is available and affordable to everyone, just like a Beetle or just like a Model T. So let's discuss a little bit more about the transition from the automotive industry to 3D mobility. Did you wake up one morning and say, cars aren't working, let's go to flying cars? Or what was the process like? Well, you know, the, the process was more or less, um, you know, starting when, when I was a boy. I was always fascinated with, with airplanes and with flying. And I, I started hang, hang gliding when I was 19 years old. And then I got into sailplane flying. I did my private pilot uh, license um, and uh, multi-engine and uh, instrument rating. And then I did my commercial pilot license. And, and uh, afterwards, I did even my uh, commercial helicopter pilot license. So there was always a strong affinity and an interest in aviation. And I was always wondering, you know, there is in the mobility industry, there is the automotive industry, but there is also rail sea and uh, air uh, transport, right? And the interesting thing is the automotive industry is the only mobility industry which has a positive business case in each step of the process chain. So, you know, it's not only the OEMs, it's the suppliers, it's the logistic companies, it's the dealers, it's even the cities and governments, you know, taking money for, uh, you know, parking expensive and, and all, all kind of this, Right. And all the other mobility industries are uh, subsidized, either directly or indirectly, right? By getting the money for developing um, the vehicles or, you know, operating them, uh, you know, getting uh, tax cuts on fuel and, and whatsoever, right? And there is, there's reason for this, right? But um, um, this was also the reason why, you know, in aviation, um, Airplanes actually never really got down to this, um, you know, cost level so that the people could afford it. That was one reason. The other reason is, you know, it takes quite an effort to get the pilot's license. You know, you have to have your medical 
And, you know, it, it, it's, it's just an expensive uh, way to, to travel. It does make sense, but not, you know, for the every, for every, uh, you know, situation. And, um, and I was thinking about, okay, why is this? And, um, uh, well, I just mentioned it. First of all, you have to get the pilot's license. Uh, and on the other hand, it's about, you know, the money and the price uh, about these aircraft. But if you look at these general aviation aircraft from their kind of complexity, uh, comparing them to, to cars, you know, there's not really that much of a difference. So if you can manage to produce an aircraft applying the same processes which are used in the automotive industry with the same mindset, um, then there is a big difference. And the second uh, thing which changed since the last, especially five to 10 years is that uh, with automatization, you can actually um, uh, can fly without having a pilot on board. So, you know, I'm not talking about autonomous flying. I'm talking about automatic flying. And automatic flight autopilots are used in the aviation industry for many decades, right? But there's still a pilot on board. And the next step would be, you know, that there is no pilot on board anymore. But of course, you know, there's a ground station where there is people looking at the flight. But the, the aircraft gets the flight information from a flight plan, just as you did, you know, the last decades. And then you, you've, the aircraft flies following this flight plan, which has been, you know, pre-planned, um, and uh, to fly cargo and, and people from, from A to B. So currently, excuse me, you would say that where does Fly No Aviation currently stand? You're working on the vehicle, you're working on the cargo vehicle, you're working on a piloted vehicle. What's the current step? What what stage is Flyno Aviation at? Well, right now we are in the process of um, getting the the full scale prototype up and running. So we are just now in the in the testing phase uh, for you know making making the first uh, uh, tests and flights at uh, Salzburg Airport. Um, and even before we started the company, you know, I was I was showing the concept to Austrocontrol, the Austrian Aviation Authority. Which of course is part of EASA, and um, and I've been showing them our concept and asking them, you know, what they thought about it or what they think about it, and if they would be willing to support it. So, and from the very beginning, they were very supportive and they were very helpful. And you know, they're asking tough questions, but in the end, they said, "Okay, we think that this is a, you know, a solid uh, concept, and and we are going to to support you." And um, and that's what they did from the very beginning, because otherwise we wouldn't even have founded the company. And um, and also, and this is something what I've learned in the automotive industry. You know, if you want to be successful, you have to have a modular family. You know, usually if you if you make uh, only one one car, one type of car, it's not going to be commercially successful, right? So they always have to be derivates in order to meet the different requirements from different customers. So we said, okay, it's going to be the cargo version. Um, for the size of a Euro pellet and one cubic meter of volume and 200 kilograms of payload. And then there's going to be a one and a two seater. And, um, and why one and two seater? Well, very simple because as I said before, you know, on average, there is 1.2 people sitting in a car all over the world, right? So why make a five seater, you know, if people are usually 
commuting by themselves or probably with uh, on the second person, right? And and that's actually also the the people we are aiming for in the beginning. It's going to be the innovators and early adopters, which are making approximately 15 to 20% of the population, depending on the country. Um, and, and from these 15 to 20%, we say, okay, about 10% are going to use this kind of mobility, right, in the beginning. Because, you know, there's a lot of reasons for people why they are afraid of using it. Um, that's also one of the reasons we are starting with the cargo version to really you know, um, also show to the public that this is a, a very safe and a very comfortable um, and also a very um, cost-effective means of transport, especially for the shorter distances below 50 kilometers, because this is where most of the traffic is happening. And for larger distances, you know, there's other means of transport which are which are better. Um, so we we knew from the very beginning what we are aiming for, having something for up to 50 kilometers uh up to 130 kilometers per hour um speed and um gives you about you know half an hour flight time um and um and this is also very important be very uh um quiet so you know we are having about 55 dba um at uh 150 meters altitude or 500 feet approximately um so you know, in comparison to background noise, which you usually have in a city between 60 and 65 dBA, you wouldn't even hear uh, such an aircraft if it flies 150 meters above you. So that's, you know, this is what we have been aiming for from, from the very beginning. And, uh, um, and what is probably also uh, interesting to mention, you know, we are no drone by definition because you have to have three or more propellers for vertical lift to be a drone, um, and we are having a, a coaxial two-rotor system. So we are more like a helicopter, which has a big advantage concerning certification. Um, if you if you are a drone, you have to follow SCV toll at the EASA regulation, right? And so far, no aircraft has ever been certified following this regulation. Now, with CS-27, which we refer to mainly, uh, or CSVLR, which is very light rotorcraft, um, this is a regulation which exists now for many years, and a lot of helicopters have been certified following this regulation. And by doing so, you know, we are able to also mitigate all the certification uh, uh, you know, risks and, and everything associated with this. So I'd like to ask you, the logistics and infrastructure required for your current EVTOLs, for your current platform, I mean, obviously, you need a place for them to take off and land. You're currently working at the airport. But when you try to deploy into a large city, what does the infrastructure look like? Yeah, well, very good. Very good question. You know, we are uh, an OEM for, for aircraft. And of course, you need an infrastructure um, or, you know, as it's uh, now say in modern, modern words, uh, an ecosystem. And of course, we are, in, <laughs> we, are, we are in contact with companies which are focusing on, you know, starting in landing hubs, um, air traffic management. We're also talking to uh, the authorities concerning the regulation, um, also different... Um, communities or cities um, which are interested in 
setting up such a ecosystem in order to actually really uh, operate this. Um, and in the beginning, of course, you know, this will be uh, only, you know, one route probably in the beginning, just to see going back and forth, does this work in an area where it, it makes sense? And starting with the cargo version, um, flying over non-populated or, or low-populated areas, um, just, you know, to set up the system and um, everybody participating, all the stakeholders, you know, learning uh, from each other and, 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 and uh, you know, also try things in the beginning. So that from there you can then spread it into you know different other areas and uh, and the interesting thing is you know we, we are talking to different uh, countries and and different companies uh, privately or also state owned um, and it's it's amazing you know how how different uh, uh, you know people react on on three D mobility you know there is there is very open minded. Uh, countries and people, and then there is rather conservative ones. And uh, of course, you know, we are focusing on on the open-minded. Um, and um, um, yeah, we are very confident uh, that uh, in the next uh, upcoming weeks and months, you know, we will um, decide where we will start because, you know, we are a small company. We cannot concentrate on many different um, countries in the beginning. So we have to decide for one in the beginning, and then from there on, uh, we will then spread in, in other markets. The work that you did when you were involved in the automotive world was also revolving around hydrogen fuel cells. Do you yes. see those fuel cells being adapted for use in the unmanned aviation world, both larger and small? Um, well, um, yes, but I think this will take a little bit longer than in the automotive industry because, you know, the the automotive industry has been struggling now for at least 30 years concerning hydrogen and uh, and fuel cells. Um, and many car companies have claimed that they would, you know, uh, sell hydrogen cars in larger quantities. But, you know, if you really look into it, um, that actually not really happened. So there is some Asian car companies having hydrogen fuel cells uh for sale but uh due to the lack of the infrastructure and also the cost of these fuel cells um this has taken or is still taking a lot longer than than anticipated and uh and i think that probably in the next five to ten years there will be uh more fuel cells uh in cars um and um and they will probably become a second option besides the better electric vehicle if you know you want to substitute conventional cars um, but that's going to take a while and um, and um, in the aviation industry you know there's also some companies and we are in contact with with some of these companies who are working on hydrogen fuel cells in aircraft but um, this is also you know very tough because um, just because of you know, the price of the hydrogen tanks and also the cost of uh, the fuel cells, but also the integration into aircraft and um, and also the missing regulations. So, you know, there is there is a lot of research going on um, or some research going on. Um, but I think this is going to take at least another 10 to 15 years until you actually will be 
seeing smaller aircraft with with uh, hydrogen fuel cell drivetrains. All right. Um, my final question, something I ask all my guests is, I really like to hear your impression of where you think the unmanned industry is headed two, five, ten years down the line. Where do you think we're we're going? Well, you know, the automotive industry was very ambitious in the, you know, 2010 to 2020 concerning um, autonomous driving, right? And I, I, I can remember when in 2010, there were a lot of people who thought that, you know, in 2020, pretty much all the new cars are going to be level four, even level five. And, you know, people are going to sit in the car without having to drive the car themselves. But if you look out the road now, uh, you know, in 2023, uh, we're all talking still about level two. And then there is level two and two plus and so forth. But actually level three, uh, where, you know, the driver is not uh, responsible anymore. Uh, no car manufacturer has dared to actually really do this. And, um, um, and, and you know, I, I can understand it because there is a lot of, uh, things going on on the ground, right? Uh, which you have to take care of. Um, in the air, you know, it's um, it's simpler because you know there is no kids with balls, there is no dogs, there is no you know cyclist driving against the the one way road. There is no no mother with um, you know the the the, the carriage and whatever, right? Um, all these things are not in in the air. Um, and, and, you know, since autopilots have been used now for many decades, I think that, you know, going automatically in the first step and probably later than uh, autonomously is rather happening in 3D mobility than in 2D mobility. But this is, this is going to take longer because of the cost of the sensors, um, the necessary software but also, uh, you know, ethical uh, issues which have to be solved before. So it's not only technical issues, it's also ethical issues. And, um, and nobody actually really gave, um, you know, a very a good answer uh, to, to these problems. So, um, yes, there is going to be um, autonomous um, mobility. Uh, I think it's rather going to happen in in the air than on the ground, um, and it's going to take longer than than uh, people thought probably ten or fifteen years ago. All right, thank you so much for that answer. I want to thank you for joining me today on the show. It was great having you on. I thank you for the interview and uh, the very good questions, and uh, I hope that. Uh, you and your listeners um, enjoy the interview. Great. Thank you so much. And I want to thank everyone for listening in and I'll catch you on the next episode of Drone Source. Bye, everybody. This podcast is brought to you by Elsight. Elsight helps drone companies operate beyond the visual line of sight, overcome regulatory challenges, and scale business through integrated connectivity solutions. Thanks for listening and we'll see you in our next episode of Drone Source.